This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 26. It's found on page 860. The Bible is in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke 5, 1 through 26. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master... We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled their boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to a priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men who were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and, pick, and picked up what, had been, what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, You know, when you try to 
get to know somebody, um, you do so by listening to them, listening to what they have to say, but you also look at what they do, right? That is, you see how they carry themselves, how they treat people, and so on. And in Luke chapter 4, the last chapter, we learned uh, about Jesus teaching in the synagogue, and in last week's sermon, we listened to what Jesus had to say, but today we get to know Jesus by watching what he does. And there are a trio of miracles here in this passage that was just read to us. The miraculous catch, the cleansing of the leper, and the healing of the paralytic. Any one of these could be the subject of an entire sermon, but I think Luke puts them together like he does so that we might learn something from them together as a whole. And so as we look at this passage this morning, as we look at this trio of miracles, we're going to think about sort of the miracles in general and their place in Jesus' ministry. But then secondly, we're going to think about mission. Uh, We're going to think about both Jesus' mission and our mission, what we learn from these stories. All right, so miracles and mission. Let's think about it that way, all right? So first, miracles. You know, as I said, there are three of them here. In this passage, and at the end of verse 26, it says, Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And I want to ask kind of a, which you may say is a high level question this morning, big picture question, and that is, What function do these miracles have in Luke's portrait? Of Jesus, Because, you know, Luke doesn't include everything that he knows. He tells us in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke that he's done all the research. He's read what others have written about Jesus. He's gone to the eyewitnesses. He's sorted through it all. He's produced now this orderly account. And so he's selective in what he includes. And so then the question is, why include these stories? Why do these stories, these miracle stories, make their way in to Luke's portrait of Jesus? And the answer is they serve two purposes, really. They were pointers, these miracle stories, were pointers, meaning that they show us something about where Jesus wants the world to go. They also show us his power. They give us confidence that if Jesus can tackle these kinds of things, well, then he can deal with all the other things in our lives as well. All right, think about it that way. First, miracles are pointers, right? Uh, Jesus' miracles were never just naked displays of power. Have you ever noticed that? When you read other ancient stories, legends or fictional stories, even modern comic books, superpowers are just like that, right? They are uh, naked displays of power. People say, you know, how do we know you really are Superman, right? And he, like, you know, uses his heat ray vision and, you know, blasts the top off a mountain or something, right? But you never see that kind of thing with Jesus, None of the miracles are like that. They don't function like that in the gospel stories. In John's gospel, John calls them, he didn't even call them miracles, he calls them signs. Signs signify something. They point to something. What do these point to? Well, the miracles of Jesus, they always deal with human difficulty and suffering. He feeds the hungry, he heals the sick, he cures the blind and the deaf, he liberates the oppressed, he raises the dead. And all this is meant to point us way back to the way the world was when God originally created it. When he feeds the hungry, Jesus points us back to a time when there were no starving children with swollen bellies. When he heals the sick, he points us to a time when there was no suffering or disease or COVID or cancer or death. 
When he calms the storm, he points us to a time when nature was our friend. There were no disasters or droughts or famine. The miraculous catch, one of our stories this morning. Jesus points us to a time when you went to work and you got out of your work everything you actually put into your work. You worked hard and you got a great reward. No thorns, nor thistles, nor obstacles frustrating you along the way. The miracles of Jesus, far from being suspensions of natural law, actually are restorations of natural law. They point us back to God's original intention for the world before sin comes in and disrupts and breaks everything apart. Listen to the words here of uh, Jürgen Moltmann, German theologian. He, He writes this. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, He is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So the miracles point us way back, they also point us way forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. The miracles are a taste, a foreshadowing of what the kingdom of God and all of its fullness will be like, where there will be no outcasts, there will be no lepers. People who once were excluded will be included, brought in, drawn near. The paralytic story Reminds us that here our bodies fail us, but there we will have redeemed bodies, fully functioning in all the ways we were meant to. Miracles are pointers back to God's original intention for the world, forward to the kingdom of God. But then secondly, these miracles show us the power of Jesus. When somebody tells you that they can do something for you, Immediately, and this may even be sort of at the subconscious level, but when somebody says they can do something for you, subconsciously at least, maybe consciously, you're, you're evaluating uh, two things. You're, you're thinking first, right, are they serious? You know, do they really mean it? Do they really want to do this thing for me? But then second, you're thinking, can they do it? Right? Do they have the power to follow through or to be good on this promise they've made? And Jesus, you know, he made some enormous claims, right? He said he can forgive your sins. He can make you clean. He can make you right with God. He can bring you into his kingdom. He can give you eternal life. He can put the whole world right again. Those are enormous claims. The question is, how do we know he can do it? How do we know he can do it? Well, the miracles demonstrate that he has the power to do what he claims to be able to do. Let's think for a moment, just the story of the cleansing of the leper which is down there in verse 12. In the first century, lepers were thought to be kind of a, what you might call a worst case scenario. The term leprosy didn't refer to just one kind of disease, but really was a catch-all in the first century for a whole range of skin diseases, many of which resembled something like rotting flesh. So potentially then lepers were a health hazard, and so they were isolated. They had to yell out unclean, unclean whenever they came near to anyone so nobody would come into contact with them. Physically, they were objectionable. It was hard to look at them. Ceremonially and religiously, they were excluded unclean. They were not allowed to be around the temple. 
So they were, in kind of every sense of the word, lost causes. The rabbis called them the walking dead. Jesus reaches out and he touches this man, this worst case, this lost cause, and he heals him. And this is good news. This is good news for you and me because some of us feel like a lost cause. These stories are meant to show us that Jesus can bring healing. Jesus can bring cleansing into your life no matter what you've done, no matter your history or your secrets, no matter what's been done to you, the ways that you feel like maybe you've been stained or harmed or tarnished or tainted. Luke gives us this story, this worst case that he can think of. And he says, see, Jesus can make you clean. If he can do it for this guy, he can do it for you. He can do it in your life. The miracle stories are pointers to what Jesus wants to do with the world, back to God's intention, forward to the kingdom of God, what he's going to do. But they're also evidence of his power, what he can do, what he can do in your life. But then the miracles also tell us something about mission. Now, the Latin term missio is the word for sent, to be sent, right? Missio Dei means, that's the title of the sermon this morning, means the mission of God, right? What is this mission that God is on? What is he doing? How is he sending into the world? And if you read the Gospels, you see this sentness as an idea that comes up over and over again. The Father sends the Son into the world, sends him on mission in the world. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit into the world. Remember, Jesus promises to send the Helper, send the Spirit to the church. And then the Father, Son, and Spirit together empower and together send the church, all of you, into the world. And so each of these little vignettes uh, show us something, not just about Jesus' mission, but they actually also reveal something about how we are being sent into the world as well. And so let's just think about them, just kind of consecutively, we'll talk about them here. First, we see that he sends us into our work. And this is the story of the miraculous catch, the first one in the chapter. Jesus is teaching by the lake, right? The crowds are so big, he has to go out into the boats. And eventually after he's done, he asks them to put out into, uh, away from the land into the sea. And he asks the fishermen to drop their nets again. Now, Peter is really skeptical about this. Now, he's the professional, right? And he might also have a little bit of, you know, feeling of like, he's, he does this all the time. You know, Jesus teaches about religious things. You know, how is he going to speak into, can he really speak into my life, you know, my work life? You know, he can speak into my religious life. Can he speak into my work life? That might be part of it. But also, Peter just knows a lot about fishing, and he knows this is the wrong time of day to be doing this kind of thing, right? When you fish, you normally do it at dawn or dusk, and this is neither of those times. Not only is it the wrong time of day, it's just the wrong day. Fish aren't biting. They've been out there for a while. They know this is not a good time. But Peter says, to his credit, he says, all right, for you, Jesus, I'll do it. I'll put the, the nets down. And then they get the biggest haul of fish that they've ever seen. The boats are sinking under the weight of it. So enormous. But then look what happens down in verse 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, this miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now what's happening here? Why does Peter do this? Tim Keller calls this a self-quake. Peter is having 
a self-quake. That is, he gets a glimpse of Jesus and it shakes Peter to the very core of his being. Now, what is that like? Well, imagine for a second, like imagine if you've always thought of yourself as a smart person, right? Maybe you grew up, you did well in school, you were always the head of the class and maybe you were valedictorian or whatever. You always thought of yourself as a smart person, but then you, you know, at work or at a project or something like that, you get next to somebody who's truly a genius. How does that feel? It hurts a little bit. It's painful, right? If you've always, if you pulled that into your identity, I'm a smart person, but then you get to somebody and it's a next level kind of intelligence. Oof. It's painful, right, to be next to something like that. Or, let's put it another way, uh, in your town, let's say you grew up and you were always a great musician. That's how you were known, that was kind of your, uh, that's how people thought of you, that's how you thought of yourself. You're always a great uh, musician, but then you go off to a big city and then you see that the, the guy who's playing for, for, for change, for money, in the subway is better than you. <laughs> it's painful. It's disorienting. If, again, if you pulled that into your identity, I'm a great musician, to know that even the, the folks in the subway are better. Or you're a star athlete, captain of the team, all the way through. That's been part of who you are. And then you get to college and you can't crack the lineup. You can't get off the bench. There's a kind of psychological dislocation. When you pulled something into your identity, this is who I am, this is what I'm good at, this is what makes me significant, this is what I'm known for, and then to discover that it's not all that impressive at all, that is painful. And that's what Peter's experiencing here. And really, frankly, what everybody experiences when you come into the presence of God. Because if there is a God, then God is infinitely beautiful, which means if you get near to him, you're going to be aware of your ugliness. If there is a God, he is infinitely wise, which means if you get close to him, even your best wisdom is going to look like foolishness. God is infinitely holy, which if you get close to him is going to bring into relief how soiled and tarnished you are. Your immorality, your wretchedness will be brought into relief. And this is the kind of thing you see all throughout the Bible, actually. When people get into the presence of God, they have this kind of self-quake kind of experience. The prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord on his throne, and he says, what's his reaction? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, or Job. He said, I had heard of you. By the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And then here, Peter, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Be be near to Jesus. Peter gets a real picture of himself. Whatever sense he had before, being a, a good person, a moral person, starts to break up. And standing next to Jesus, a self-quake. But Jesus doesn't leave him there, sort of in dust and ashes. Instead, in verse 10, he says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. This is grace. This is Jesus saying, uh, Peter, despite your sinfulness, despite your undoneness, despite your wretchedness, I want you. I want you to come. Near with me. I want you to come and follow me. I want you to be my partner in this work. You were catching fish, Peter. 
Now you're going to be fishing for men. And of course, this gives a whole new significance to Peter's work, right? If you are following Jesus in your work, you're not just clocking in and clocking out. You're not just working to get by, but there's eternal significance in everything that you do, knowing that he has sent you there. He has put you there. He has commissioned you to be there. And then in verse 11, it says, they left everything in order to follow him. Now, if you just had this story alone and not the rest of the Bible you would probably conclude that everyone who's really serious about following Jesus should leave their jobs and join some kind of vocational ministry. If, you, if we just had this story, that would probably be the conclusion we would draw. But, but we don't have just this story. And the testimony of the rest of the Bible is not that that's the case. You have Esther and Daniel and Joseph and Abraham, all these folks who, uh, and many, many more, who have what you might call secular jobs. And God does not call them out of those jobs. Rather, uh, we're told in Scripture repeatedly, you don't have to be in full-time ministry in order to serve the Lord. But there is still something here in our story of whatever kind of work you do. They brought their boats, it says, to the land, verse 11, and they left everything to follow him. They left everything, including this massive catch that they just had. In order to follow him. Now, just imagine the scene for a second, right? This is the biggest catch that not just they had had, but anyone had ever seen before. And they just walk away from it. Think about what they're leaving on the table or literally leaving on the shore there, right? Can you imagine the other people looking on? They're seeing this massive haul come in and then everybody just sort of walks away from it. And they're thinking... Are you going to be coming back or can we have at it? You know, and eventually when they realize they're not coming back, a mad dash to get it, right? Because this would have been, right, a huge profit. They left enormous profits in order to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if it's going to be profits exactly for you, but I am 100% certain that if you bring your faith to work, you're going to end up leaving. You're going to need to leave some things on the table, in order to follow Jesus. It might be prophets. As your priorities, as you prioritize other things according to the kingdom of God. Not that prophets are bad, but that you won't, that won't be the only thing. That won't be the main thing. It won't be the primary consideration for you. You might be leaving a promotion on the table. If you re- refuse to let your work define your identity and you draw some boundaries in order to Spend time caring for your family or your neighborhood or your church. Won't be willing to trample on someone in order to get ahead. I think you get the point, right? If you bring your faith to work, you realize you only have one master and it can't be your work. It's got to be Jesus, which would mean then if there's a conflict, you have to leave some things behind in order to follow him. We're sent into our work with our faith. But secondly, Jesus sends us to the marginalized. And that's the second story, the story of the leper, starting in verse 12. And it's talked about it a little bit already, but it's a moving story, especially when you think about the context of what's going on here. Remember, lepers were, were sick physically, which is a terrible thing in and of itself. They were also isolated because of the fear of contagion. They were cast out of their communities and their families. They were destitute, no job. So they were poor and impoverished. They weren't allowed to worship in the temple, so they were unclean. They were cursed, you might say. Early readers of the story would have known this would have been an enormous deal just for this leper 
this man to come into the city to try to get around Jesus. He took a big chance socially and otherwise just coming into town to try to get near to Jesus. And he falls down, we're told in the story, he falls down before Jesus and he begs him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Two things I want you to note here just about the story. First is that this is a, a theme in the Gospel of Luke, this idea of outcasts. You'll see this as we keep going through. And the outcasts, the most desperate cases, these are the people who are the most drawn to Jesus, and these are the people that Jesus is the most drawn to. Lepers, tax collectors. Remember, they were the collaborators, the hostile foreign government. Gentiles, right? They were outsiders ethnically and religiously. Prostitutes, moral outsiders, people with possessed by demons, people not in their right minds. Jesus is always reaching out to folks like this. He's moving toward folks like this. He's bringing them in, bringing them close. Jesus was attracted to people at the margins and for to follow him, then we should be too. We should be too. Are you making room For folks like that in your life. God does not send us into the world to do networking, right? Mission is not networking. You know what networking is. Being around people who are like you or who can help you. That is not mission. No, we are sent to the least and to the lost, which is draining, which is hard, which is one of the reasons why Jesus sends people out two by two. So you can share that burden as you think about your neighborhoods, as you think about your schools, think about partnering when you can in ministries. But we ought to be pressing to look for the lonely, look for the hurting, look for who seems to be the outcast, look for the least, look for the lost. But then secondly, notice also that Jesus touches the leper. Verse 13 says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. Now he didn't have to do that, right? Jesus can heal Uh, With a word from a distance, right? We see this in other places in the Gospels. But here he touches. Why? Well, the leper had in all likelihood not been touched in months, maybe years, maybe decades. It's no embraces from friends, no hugs from children, no kiss from a spouse, no contact at all until... Jesus reaches out and touches him. To be sent by Jesus, to join him in his mission, it can't be a long-distance thing, right? It can't be just writing a check or saying a prayer, as good as those things may be. Jesus moved toward the hard cases. He got close. He came into contact. Go and do likewise, right, if we follow him in his mission. There was a uh, Belgian priest by the name of Joseph Damien. In 1863, became a missionary to Hawaii. And you're thinking, oh, rough life, you know, missionary to Hawaii. But it was, it was a rough life. Because he went to an island called Molokai that lepers had been banished to. They were eking out a miserable existence in the midst of disease and filth and poverty without either family or church to sustain them. This is where Father Damien went to live. He buried their dead. 
He taught them hygiene. He built churches. He built chapels. He cleaned the water supply. He improved homes. He built a hospital and an orphanage. He served as their teacher, carpenter, mason, pastor, and friend. And the selfless ministry continued for 16 years until one Sunday morning he stood up and he began his sermon, We Lepers. He had contracted the disease and died in 1889. Jesus calls us to follow him in mission like that, especially to come close to the least and the lost, the outsider, the sick, the vulnerable, the hurting, and the poor. So he sends us into our work. He sends us to the marginalized. But finally, he sends us to minister to people's hearts. And that's the third little vignette here, the healing of the paralytic, beginning in verse 17. And I just want you to notice, there's a lot we could talk about with this story, and we've preached on it before. But I, I just want you to notice what Jesus says to this man first, in verse 20. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, it seems a little bit like a non sequitur, doesn't it? I mean, it, 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 can you imagine what sort of watching this whole thing come down and Jesus interacting with him? It's like, Jesus, can you not see what this guy's real problem is, right? I mean, it's, 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 it does not take great powers of observation to recognize uh, the reason why this man is here, the reason why he needs to be here, the reason why he needs to get near Jesus. He's paralyzed, right? And you, you can't miss it. His friends are lowering him down in the middle of the room in front of everybody to see, right? His need, his obvious need is on full display for everybody to see. And yet it's not the first thing that Jesus addresses. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. It's as if Jesus is saying, you have two paralyzing diseases, not one. A broken body, which is a horrible thing. But the only thing that can really destroy you, destroy you forever, is a soul that's not right with God. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, let me take care of your biggest problem first. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees grumble at this because they see the implication. It's one thing to forgive someone if they sin against you. It's a whole other thing to forgive somebody of all their sins, right? And so Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees have this objection turns to them in verse 23 and says, which is it harder to do, to forgive someone's sins or to tell a paralytic to get up and walk? Which is kind of a trick question because they both sound pretty hard to me, right? I mean, it's easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, but to really forgive their sins, all their sins, to give them a clean conscience, to make them right with God, to give them eternal life, to open the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Pharisees would have known this, this would be the harder thing because it's only something that only God can do. And then Jesus says, well, just so you know that I can do the harder thing, I can forgive someone's sins. I'm going to do the easier thing. And he looks at the man and he says, rise, pick up your mat and go home. Now, as we follow Jesus in mission, we need to be aware, even as we address physical needs and practical needs and tangible needs, and we should. The deepest needs are always spiritual. They're always matters of the heart. They're always matters of the soul. Whatever else we do in mission, we always have to have before us that this is the role of the church is to proclaim this gospel of the forgiveness of sins, to show people Jesus and what he can do for them. 
thinking about mission here in this story, just lastly, think about the friends really quickly. They love their buddy. And, and, and nothing's going to stop them from getting their friend to Jesus, right? There's too much crowd, too small a house. Well, fine, let's go to the roof, right? They're going to lower him down. I love their, they can't be stopped. And notice verse 20 says, Luke says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Not just the faith of the paralyzed man, but also the faith of his friends who would stop at nothing to get their buddy into the presence of Jesus. Their friend had a need and they had a hunch that Jesus was the one who could meet that need. And you all have friends who have needs. In what ways can we be praying that Jesus would meet their needs? Maybe somebody, maybe the Holy Spirit's putting somebody on your, somebody specific in your mind and in your heart right now. Who can you be praying for? Who can you be thinking about? Who can be caring enough that you're willing to press on through whatever obstacles there are to try to get this person, this friend, close to Jesus? That's part of your mission as you follow him as well. So the miracle stories are pointers. They point us way back to God's original intention for the world. They point us way ahead to where the world is going with the kingdom of God. They show us Jesus' power. If he can handle these kinds of things, he can, he can handle your problems too. And then finally, these stories teach us about mission. We're sent into our work. We're sent to the marginalized. We're sent to minister to people's hearts. Let's pray this morning as we continue to meet with the Lord. And then we're sent out into our various places of work and and families and neighborhoods. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would use these stories this morning to prepare us for the week ahead, for the things that you have before us. Would you send us into our work and our schools, our neighborhoods, our families? Lord, would you give us love as we do, love for our, uh, our friends, also love for the least and for the lost. And Wherever we may need to, Lord, would you give us the courage and the wisdom to leave things behind in order to follow you? Lord, would you fill us up and then would you send us out? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.